0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And I'm here today with our guest, very special guest that I'm very excited to have on the podcast. We have Chase Chapman. She is the co-founder of Decentology and a fellow podcast host over at the On the Other Side podcast. Welcome, Chase. Thanks so much for
1: being here. Thank you. I'm excited to chat. I have always loved the Unstoppable Podcast, so I'm super excited to be chatting with you.
0: I am a huge fan of On the Other Side podcast, so... <gasps> Yay, we love that. <laughs> so definitely want to dive into Decentology, but before we do that, I'd love to know a little about your background and how you got into crypto in the first place.
1: Yeah, so... um I actually got into crypto because I was doing some stuff with like data analytics and in marketing. And it sort of was just like strange to me that we were buying data sets and, you know, using people's data and they weren't getting compensated for it. That felt weird. And so, um, you know, of course, crypto is being proposed as this like perfect solution to the data ownership problem at the time. Um, Sort of fell down the crypto rabbit hole from there and then started just like diving into everything else that you could do with crypto and very quickly found myself fully immersed in Web3 Without even realizing it, which was really cool. And then yeah, started getting involved with like She256, which is an amazing organization that matches women in the space with mentors, um, ended up co-founding what is now decentology and have been playing around in crypto ever since.
0: That's awesome. So when you first learned about it, like how did you begin to wrap your mind around it? Or like what were some of the most helpful resources for you at the time to learn as like a total newbie?
1: Yeah, I'm like very auditory, I hate reading. So um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I also watched a lot of YouTube videos. A lot of YouTube videos are sort of like explaining crypto from a technical perspective. And at the time, I think that was a lot more of the types of content that people were making. Everything else was sort of just like, not really feasible until you know more recently like even with nfts and things and so that's sort of how i like started exploring and then you know once you have like a baseline knowledge you can you can start reading um other things and, and understand what people are sort of like synthesizing on top but that's how i originally got into it and i still love listening to like podcasts and watching videos as my way of like understanding what's going on in the space i think it's much more fun and personal
0: yeah, I'm the same way. And it's a lot more convenient, too, to pop in your headphones and listen to a podcast, like wherever you are at the gym, walking the dog, doing anything versus like reading. It's it's not that I hate reading. I just don't like it's so hard to find the time to sit there and read when you can like listen to an
1: audiobook, you know, like as you're doing stuff. Oh, yeah. Multitasking while learning about crypto is interesting, because also if you just like let it absorb in your mind, you can start to like Sometimes I find myself latching onto interesting concepts where I'm not even thinking about it in the context that they're talking about it in, but I'm like, oh, that applies to DAOs in this weird and interesting way. And so that's kind of fun, too.
0: Yep. Yep. Everything in your mind goes straight to DAOs, as <laughs> we, we will quickly get into. Um, okay. So you, you learn about Web3. You start diving in, going down the rabbit hole. And then how does that evolve into Decentology?
1: Yeah, so I ended up um, getting matched with uh, Nick, who's now my co-founder, and we started just like experimenting, doing cool shit, trying to make crypto more accessible, and ultimately realized that one of the big challenges then was that um, it's really hard to make crypto more accessible for mainstream users when developers don't even have the tooling that they need to like build interesting applications and so we started playing around with that and and that ultimately became Decentology. So we're basically building um, composable smart contracts that are already deployed and audited and so one of the big challenges today is just that auditing is a pain in the ass and then also like writing contracts is a pain in the ass, especially for Web2 developers coming in. Um, you know, you have immutability, you have all of these things, or, but you also need for security. And so we really focused on this idea of how could we make it really easy to build these applications, but also build secure applications. And so that's where we're at now, which has been really fun. We support a bunch of different layer ones and side chains and things. Um, and so we're, we're continuing to build that out as, as its own DAO. And then I'm also, and, and I'm very much involved in the DAO side there. And then I'm also really getting more into other DAOs, which has been super fun in the ecosystem. So Forefront, Index Co-op, helping Rabbit Hole build out their DAO. So that's been super fun and interesting. And DAOs are sort of my, my like, the thing that gets me super excited. So it's been really fun to, to explore that in crypto.
0: That's definitely the niche that you've carved out for yourself. I want to break down some of the stuff you said about decentology. So you mentioned auditing as like one of the biggest pain points. And we had a question on Twitter from Albert actually about like, what are the biggest pain points for builders in the blockchain ecosystem today? And obviously there are a lot of them. So like which ones are the most important ones to solve for?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple. The first is a lot of what we've done is build products for Web three developers, but really like trying to cater them also to Web two developers who want to build crypto applications. Because right now, I think when you think about the types of people building these applications, um, there are a lot of people who are coming in and wanting to to build cool shit in crypto and experiment. But it's just like not easy to learn Solidity. There's an entire sort of paradigm shift when you're thinking about decentralized application development. And so one of the big things that we done from a product perspective is try to think, how can we build tools that are catered towards Web3 developers, but also people who are learning? So um, using things like RESTful, sort of like um, standards, sort of like what APIs are are developers used to with APIs. Um, And so we've done some of that to just like help Make it easier to not have to fully understand like all of these new paradigm shifts, or you know help people understand them. So like even um, Notion has done a really good job at this as a product, right? Where like you you start using it and it's easy to start to understand, and then you continually learn as you use the product more and more. And so that's really our goal when it comes to product design and thinking about how we can make it really easy for developers who are new to the space, but also sort of grow with them. So that's one piece. The second piece is auditing. Like auditing is super expensive. It's a pain in the ass. They're, they're sort of messed up because you end up having this situation where um, essentially an auditing firm will do an audit, but there's no like accountability or, you know, insurance that that's actually um, going to hold up. And, and it doesn't make sense for those firms to do that. And so what we've done is think a lot more about how can we uh, create economic incentives, not only for auditors to scale their businesses, but also for developers to make sure that they have coverage of of these contracts. So we're doing modular pre-deployed contracts with staking actually built into them. So auditors can stake on the security of a contract. If a contract exploit happens, then it's slashed um, and distributed to uh, the people who essentially who suffered from that exploit. And so it's kind of like an insurance model on top, but it also allows um, those who are staking on these, these modular contracts to get revenue every time someone uses them, and so it makes auditing a very scalable business. But it also makes sure that developers, particularly who are building for like mainstream users who aren't going to know how to take out like a cover using Nexus Mutual and and want to do more complex stuff, essentially have some sort of like insurance layer built into it.
0: Got it. Cool. And then, what are some like cool apps that you've seen built on Decentology so far?
1: Yeah, so we're still super early. We're actually just now building out this like modular contract with um, auditing built in. We've done a lot right now with um, like modular implementations, kind of like Open Zeppelin, where you can actually deploy your own instance. But now we're building out this like auditing side. So we're working with a few projects, particularly in the Flow ecosystem right now, which has been really cool. Um, They're very well sort of architected for composability in particular. And um, we'll be having some like cool releases over the next few months on that. Nice, are you only on Flow or also on other blockchains as well? Yeah. So we support Ethereum, Flow, Solana, Polygon, Avalanche. We support and and a few others. We support like a reasonable amount of of layer ones. But when it comes to this composability and auditing piece, we're sort of slowly rolling this out. We want to make sure that we're building these stronger ecosystems, which will ultimately be DAOs um, within each of these ecosystems before we sort of fully send it across them. We think sort of depth and like building out a really strong ecosystem is important before we go and try to do it across a bunch of different um, layer ones and sidechains.
0: Okay, so tell me more about this DAO thing.
1: (laughs) So the basic (laughs) idea, yes, of course the DAOs. The basic idea behind this is like, you know, we'll have developers who are contributing these contracts. We'll have auditors who are auditing and staking on the contracts. And so we essentially create this this entire ecosystem that is owned by um, the community, built by the community. And to us, that's really important. That's something that's been, you know, that's basically existed in the open source ecosystem for a really long time. It's just that there's no way to make it so that the people who are contributing actually owned the the product and the upside. And you sort of have this where like maybe a company um, like Facebook came in and either um, funded the development of certain open source products, but it was never really like the the actual contributors were seeing massive upside. And so what we're really excited about is is enabling that. Um, and and I think that's why I love DAOs is like it's not just for for this use case. It's really like across the board DAOs enable this upside that you just would never be able to have in a, in a traditional like community. I like to say like DAOs sort of give you the freedom of freelancing with the upside of of ownership. And I think that's really, really powerful. And so that's what we're building at Decentology. But that's also what we're seeing sort of like play out in the forefront community and in index co-op. Um, and so that's what gets me super excited about DAOs.
0: Well, OK, so let's dive into more of that. So uh, forefront index. What else am I missing? Remind people like what what are all the DAOs that you're a part of?
1: Yes. So the DAOs that I like actively contribute to are Decentology, which I'm much more like in the community now. I think it's really important to have a founder, one founder definitely working operationally, but another founder that's actually like much more deep into the DAO community. I don't think you should build a DAO if you've never been a part of one and aren't actively contributing to DAOs. Um, So Decentology is one. And then Index Co-op, where I'm helping with women in Index, which is helping women and non-binary people get into Index, start contributing. Forefront, where I'm helping on. Video stuff, but also onboarding and culture, and, and a bunch of different things, and then rabbit holes, original sort of, or I guess first step towards a Tao, which is called Pathfinder, um, which Diana you are in, um, but and as as a pioneer, which is basically yeah, just how can we bring. Um, an entire ecosystem in where we take rabbit hole, which is already doing some really amazing things and decentralize it. So how can we take content creators and have them create guides? And how can we have NFT artists come in and create um, prizes for doing rabbit hole quests? So all of that kind of stuff, which has been really, really fun to, to help set up. And then I'm also sort of like, you know, technically in FWV and technically in Metagama Delta and all these other things. But, but those are sort of the core DAOs that I contribute to.
0: Okay. That's already a ton. I feel like most people are only active in like maybe one or two DAOs. So that's already a lot. And then one of the questions I hear the most from people that are new to DAOs and curious to learn more is like, how do I, where do I even start? Like, how do I even go about finding a DAO that I want to join? And then how do I go ahead and get started? So I'd be curious to hear, like, how did you discover those DAOs that you're part of, Forefront Index, rabbit hole all of these and what was it about these DAOs? Cause now there's hundreds of DAOs out there. So what was it about these DAOs specifically that made you want to, you know, be an active contributor there?
1: Yeah. So I think like sort of tactically, one of the things that's really underrated that I wish people were more open about is lurking. I think, you know, if you're like essentially interviewing for a company or you want to help you want to work for a company or work with a company. There's no instance in which you can go into like their Slack and just see what the vibe is. But you can do that in DAOs. And I think everyone should be doing that in DAOs. Like, go into the Discord, see if you vibe with the people. I think that's the most important thing because product is going to change. The way that things sort of unfold is is always changing in crypto. But if you like the people that you're working with, I think it's massively more important. And so that's sort of how I ended up where I am and contributing where I am. So um, for Forefront, I, like, discovered them. I don't know. I was digging into DAOs. I think I probably came across something that Cooper Turley wrote or something like that. Like that and essentially was like, oh, this is really cool. I'm gonna, you know, check it out. And I really liked the vibe. I really liked um, Carlos and Jihad. They were thinking in in really interesting ways about social tokens and DAOs. And um, Carlos definitely likes to build shit, which is really cool because it's sort of like a bias towards action. Um, and so I I really liked that. Index Co-op was the same way. I met Simon and I was like. Yes, I definitely want to help make this happen. I know you had him on the podcast. He was just he's an awesome person and and um, I think embodies a lot of like the culture of index, which was really cool. So that's sort of how I've like gone about finding these things. And with Rabbit Hole, I knew Brian before and, and had always loved Rabbit Hole, and so it sort of worked out really well. And even with decentology, we've seen that where people are passionate about the the concept of of building these types of tools, but also just like vibe with the community. We did a flow boot camp actually that was really cool because essentially the people who loved the bootcamp and liked the community vibe ended up becoming contributors and that was a really cool way for people to sort of experiment so I think that type of experimentation is really important and and figuring out who you vibe with is like the most important aspect and then you know once you actually decide that you like a community um, I will say it can be like a little bit uncomfortable I think this is something that we don't talk a lot about in DAOs but figuring out where you fit in is not easy and sometimes it's not supposed to be easy because you want to have people who are like willing to take a little bit of time be a little bit uncomfortable to figure out where they can provide value. And so sometimes it means lurking a little bit more, hanging out in calls where you don't really know where you fit in yet. And I think slowly those opportunities emerge and and it becomes very clear where you can step up and provide value.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so obviously, every DAO is going to be a little bit different. And you have some DAOs like Index that have a full onboarding built out that like is really does really good job of walking a new person through what the product is and how to get involved and things like that. What has been your experience with all the different DAOs that you're actively contributing from of like how you went from being a lurker and just checking out the vibes to being like, okay, you know, like this is where I identify, like I can provide value and like actually stepping in and helping. Like, how does that, I think that is like the transition part that is uncomfortable for a lot of people and that people are therefore scared to, you know, go after because it's uncomfortable. And so what was that like for you, like with all the different DAOs that you're part of?
1: Yeah. So it's been a little bit different for each one. So like for Forefront, for example, I started with a bounty. I I like doing video stuff. I just think it's fun. And so I started working on like videos that Forefront needed me basically made and so I was like okay cool I'll do those and I ended up getting more and more involved in that as I like continued contributing those and and expanded sort of beyond the the video aspect of things for index it was like hey I know Simon and Simon is like hey we need more women you know in in index and so I sort of stepped up there I think tangibly having something that you can work on as a smaller task at first to not just understand where you can provide value in a small way but also just like how the DAO works who's working on what what the process is for getting paid and contributing and all of that kind of stuff is really important so if you can find something small that you can do i think that's massive Honestly, one of the best ways to do this is just scribing, like taking notes on meetings is incredibly helpful. There's a massive value out there. People will sort of start to know you, at least within the community. And I think that's really important. And so finding something tactical that you can do that's small to get your foot in the door, I think is really useful. Beyond that, I think starting to attend some of the working group or guild meetings and seeing what each working group is up to and where your sort of skills might fit into that is really useful. And then from there, sort of that usually these calls will have like an opportunity for someone to step up and take responsibility for something. And that's where I think people who are trying to get their foot... In the door and move move more deep into the DAO um, can start stepping up and then of course you start taking on responsibility for projects and and before you know it you're like a full time uh, contributor to DAOs like pretty easily I think DAOs do tend to bias towards distributing responsibility for work within a group and I think when that happens if you can be the one who who responsibility is distributed to and you step up and and do it um, then you can really start to like lead some of these efforts and things like that.
0: For sure. And if you had to design your,
1: like, perfect onboarding process for a DAO, like, what would that look like? That's such a good question. I always plug this, but I think Index Co-op has the best onboarding process by far. It would be, like, probably, I don't know, it it, it shouldn't be just, like, a direct copy of theirs, because I'm sure that there are things that need to be improved in it, but just for anyone who's not familiar with it, the way that they essentially work is you fill out a new joiner form. You share what your skills are, what you'd be interested in, basically information about you. They send you an invite to a new joiner call where they cover not just index, but like really how to get involved. And they'll be honest and upfront about if you have this many hours, here's what you can be doing with your time. Here's the best place to start getting involved. It's not going to be comfortable for the first couple of weeks. That's okay. Keep it up all that stuff. And then after that, um, essentially they they have this like bronze owl quest where you introduce yourself and and sort of get past that initial like speed bump <laughs> sort of, which is being a little bit shy and not necessarily wanting to like just directly get involved in the community. And by having you introduce yourself and, and actually do a couple other things, they sort of help you get past that. And so um, then you'll start attending working group calls and all that kind of stuff. And it very quickly becomes a situation where you're like, oh, okay, I could see where I... Could step up if I wanted to. And so I think they've done a super good job with that. Um, something that we're working on with Women in Index now to sort of enhance that is because of things like the confidence gap. You know, people always say like DAOs are open to anyone and everyone who wants to join them. And that is true, but you still have these off chain barriers that make it more challenging to get involved and contribute. Things like the confidence gap, where women will only apply to a job if they meet 100% of the job requirements and men will only need to meet 60% of them. Um, these smaller things do make a difference. And and of course, on the other end of that, even having access to, you know, stable Internet and things like that make it more challenging. And so considering those types of, of barriers to entry, I think, is really important. And so we're working on how we can enhance some of the, the new joiner process in Index right now to make it essentially more supportive of marginalized and underrepresented groups and acknowledging the reasons that they don't currently get involved. So that, that would be sort of my current enhancement. But uh, But yeah, I think Index is totally leading the way there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Bullish on index as well. From like a more practical perspective, do you think DAOs as they stand today are a good way for people in Web 2 to get into Web 3? Like I've heard this argument made many times, like, oh, if you're in Web 2, you want to get into Web 3, like just join a DAO, start contributing there. The way that DAOs stand today is that practical though like can somebody actually make a full-time income from doing that can they sustain themselves can you know the average person who isn't like a super go-getter and like very outgoing and you know uh, likes to take initiative can somebody who's just like an, an average person join a DAO and get involved and actually like learn something from it be able to contribute and like be able to sustain themselves financially as well
1: yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. It it touches on two things. The first is that right now, DAOs are definitely built for people who are self-starters and sort of probably more entrepreneurial. I think we bias towards people who are willing to find ways that they can provide value instead of provide value and plug into a system that already exists. I think it's probably not scalable, like we can't ask everyone to do that. Um, So that's one challenge I think that exists today. That being said, I do think that people can come into the ecosystem and basically be onboarded into Web3 from Web2. A couple examples of this would be something like Vector DAO, where it's designers working on different really cool projects and getting paid for doing that. Um, Or even Metafactory, which is like a fashion DAO that creates really cool clothing, um, where you have designers that can come in and actually create really cool shit that they they want to build and, and um get paid for doing that. So I think there are a lot of different DAOs where you can sort of do this. Full-time is definitely possible. I don't know that it's possible for every designer in Web 2 to come into Web 3 right now and and start doing that. Um, At some point, we're gonna have to continue growing these ecosystems, but I do think that there are, anyone who wants to get involved in Web 3, DAOs are really good onboarding into it, and I do think that you can make a full-time living. The other really cool thing about DAOs is that you do have this upside. When I say upside of ownership, it's like, You have a token that essentially does represent some value that is dynamic, and that can be dynamic down or dynamic up. And so you have to be careful about what that means. Like a a token can accrue in value as a network becomes more powerful, more... essentially like spanning across different parts of the ecosystem. And so um, I do think you can be a a full-time contributor. But I also think what's interesting about DAOs is that it's almost a better model to think about where you're investing your time, almost like what a VC would in some way if you're getting paid in governance tokens, because you are getting paid in something that's not a stable asset. That's not true for all DAOs. um, But I do think that makes potentially full-time work more feasible just because um, it's actually about ownership as an asset instead of just like can you get paid for your work just like you would in consulting gigs where you're getting paid in cash? Um, so I think that's a really interesting aspect of all of this. But I do think that there's there are definitely full-time work opportunities in a lot of these DAOs. And, um, and I think they're probably the best onboarding mechanism for getting more people into Web3. Like, I think that's actually going to be the next – I hope that's the next – phase of of mainstream people coming in is mainstream people actually working in crypto because trading NFTs is one thing, but working full time in crypto because you're working for a DAO to me is like the coolest thing you can do, A, but B, is actually going to keep people in crypto much longer and and sort of help align with the, the vision and longer term mission of crypto.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of awesome things about DAOs. We could talk all day about those. But I also want to talk about some of the problems that we face in DAOs and maybe some of the possible solutions that you can think of there. And so like one thing that comes to mind right off the bat is just this issue of, you know, I think like what's not talked about enough in DAOs and in crypto in general is this human side of it. Like everybody feels so burnt out in crypto it just seems like all the big names are like constantly on crypto twitter working a full-time job actively contributing to like multiple DAOs, and that seems to have been the bar that's been set for people to like if you want to like make a name for yourself in crypto like this is what you have to do it's not sustainable like you might be able to do that for a few months but you're gonna get burnt out and i think like what we're seeing in DAOs a lot is that sort of a benefit of DAOs is you can sort of just hop in and hop out and it's not like committing to like a full-time job where you have to work there, you know, for um, indefinitely or, you know, for a set amount of time, you can just contribute to a project and peace out. But at the same time, I think that makes it hard to build human relationships in DAOs, especially when you have people who are anon or pseudo, you don't really like know things about each other. And so, I think it's hard to like check in or at least I haven't heard anybody check in and say like, hey, it seems like you're working a lot. Like, do you need a vacation or like maybe you should take a break and get off your screen? That's something that I, I have just never heard anybody say in crypto. So I'm wondering, like, what's what are your thoughts on that? And maybe like what from your perspective are some of the possible solutions to that?
1: Yeah, I think there are like two interesting threads here, both of which I've thought a lot about. So the first one is just like mental health in the metaverse in general, because Ethereum and crypto is sort of like this infinite game. You know, you you always have something to be minting. There's always something to be paying attention to. The opportunity cost of getting work done is incredibly high because there's so many NFT drops all the time. And so it's this really interesting challenge of how do we balance this infinite game with just like being humans who need to like take breaks and enjoy life at the same time. And I think this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in the context of addiction. So when you think about, like, Ready Player One and this idea that you're escaping your sort of real, quote unquote, real life um, for this, like, game, I think... What What is most interesting to me, and I'm still very much forming like a thesis on this, is there's been a lot of research that addiction is a learning disorder where you actually your brain starts to associate something, whether it be a substance or Twitter, with being able to escape this like other reality that you that you live in. And so I think part of what we need to do when it comes to this type of balance is actually start thinking about how we can help our brains exist in the metaverse while still not sort of being addicted to the escape of it. And I think that that's thing that we haven't had enough conversations about, particularly in crypto, where these monetary incentives actually manifest in the real world where like, If you make a million dollars flipping NFTs, that is a real tangible change to your life. And so I think it's really easy to justify doing some of these things when actually a lot of it is sort of like addictive behavior in an interesting way. And so I think part of what we need to be doing is designing better systems. Um, I think that's really hard to do in a bull market. I I think that's going to need to be more of a bear market thing that people start to build and have conversations about. But I'm hoping that those are conversations that we can have more of and really start to figure out like, I think a lot of the the current research and suggestions on how to manage this tends to be spend less time on your screen, like reduce screen time. But I just I feel like if you're in crypto and you're seeing what's going on, it's very evident that that is not possible and it's not going to be possible because it's all about, you know, working and also your friends are there. So it's like if your downtime is in the metaverse, how does that work? Can we have vacations in the metaverse? Right. Like you get into these interesting questions. So I think that we need to start thinking a lot more about that. But I think that having a realistic view about what that might look like is is a step that we haven't even taken yet so that's like a an interesting sort of conversation on the anon piece i think where things get interesting is how we build empathy in web3 which is a lot harder so I think sort of like what you're getting at is this question of how we relate to one another and connect with one another in a world where we don't even know each other's identity. And I think one of the most interesting things that I've been thinking about is when you think about how humans build empathy, a lot of the ways that we do it are actually based on seeing one another or hearing one another. So it's your facial expressions. It's your tone of voice. It's your body language. It's all of these things where I can sort of understand where you're at when we're talking about something. And you don't have that with asynchronous communication. And you especially don't have that with something like... um dealing and working with um, anonymous, like, uh, contributors to a DAO, because you can't even, it's much harder to even empathize because you can't really put yourself in someone's shoes when you don't know what their shoes look like, if that makes sense. And so I think that's a really interesting challenge. Ultimately, I think something like AR, VR will hopefully help with some of this where you can be anonymous, but still help people see um, these indications of how you're feeling. But I'm I'm skeptical that that will happen in the near future. And so I think coming up with ways that we can really foster a sense of empathy when it's not necessarily the most intuitive thing to do in some of these situations is going to be really, really important. Yeah, I think, too, like striking that
0: balance between working async, which seems to be what most people in the space enjoy, versus having, you know, actually at least like some minimal face time or at least like audio, like, phone time to feel that, like, connection with somebody, to, like, feel empathy for them and be able to relate to them, I think striking that balance is really hard. Um, because I think a lot of people get into this space because they're like, oh, like everybody's fully remote. Everybody works asynchronously. I love it. Like I hate meetings. Uh, and that's a a lot of people in this space. And I think that's, I mean, that's myself as well. And that's why I enjoy working in this space. But then when you take that to, to an extreme, you realize, you know, like, oh, I haven't actually like spoken to anybody or like when you have a, a miscommunication or a disagreement, all of a sudden it just feels like so much harder to, like, talk through it because you've never actually talked to each other before. How do you think about, like, striking that balance?
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting challenge. Part of me thinks that the communities that care about being in person or care about having that type of connection are going to to tend to like form. And then you're going to have communities that really like to be async and really want to sort of do that, even if it's within a DAO. Like you could have DAOs where some people really don't want to get on meetings and meet IRL and some people do. I was thinking about this after MCon because I met, a couple people that I had worked with with forefront for a while, but had never met them in real life, and then also a couple friends of mine. And it was so cool to see people in person. And it felt like the one of the key takeaways that I had from that, and then I know a couple other people felt after MCon was we need to have retreats for DAOs, we need opportunities for people to meet in person to form that human connection. And I think even Anons have this. Red Phone had a really good thread on meeting with Anons, um, IRL. I will send it to you that you can link it in this like episode description because it was so touching. And what I think was most interesting about that and the MCON experience was that by meeting with someone in real life, particularly if you're anonymous, there is a sense of vulnerability that comes with that, that you just can't really create online. And so I think what we might start to see is Yes, people work mostly async, but we have a lot more retreats, opportunities to meet in real life, opportunities to bond and be vulnerable with people um, in real life or on Zoom in ways that feel like they're progressing the relationship with people and building that really strong connection. Um, How we do that async, I think, is going to be super interesting, too, because I think it's not going to be scalable for everyone, especially with these like global communities. And so I think we're going to start to see a lot more ways for people to begin doing that and probably more bonding with people. We'll see what that ends up looking like, though. I I don't know exactly. I think every DAO is going to have a different approach to it, which is going to be interesting to see culturally how that sort of evolves.
0: Yeah, for sure. And as a step one, we need COVID to go away so we
1: can all travel (laughs) everywhere
0: and feel safe doing that.
1: (laughs) That would be good. That would be useful. And that's like what's hard, too, is that a lot of different countries have different restrictions. The cool thing about this is that it has forced us to learn how to build human connection online. I have met a lot of my crypto friends on Twitter and then met them IRL. And that's a really cool way to build relationships. I hadn't met my co-founder IRL for many months into us actually working together. So I think there are definitely ways to build that trust and those relationships. I actually think that I'm super obsessed with multisigs right now as a way to like socialize people and and hang out um, and feel connection with someone async where you like basically pool money with your friends into a multi-sig and then ape into things together. And I actually think that there's an amount of trust that goes into that, especially if it's a one signer multi-sig where anyone in the group can spend the group's money. And so I think things like that too help create this sense of connection, that alone is definitely not going to do it. Like that is not enough. But I think those types of ways of building trust, vulnerability, connection are really interesting.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think another big question that I think of when it comes to DAOs is with scaling. And so I think when you have, you know, a small DAO, like I think the ideal situation for a DAO is just a group of like five to ten friends who all know each other and all have complementary skill sets. They form a DAO together for to achieve whatever goal. And you know, that that's sort of like the ultimate, I think, like structure for a DAO, because then everybody like is gonna work well together, everybody has something that they already know they can contribute. And there's like no awkwardness, there's no like, uncomfortable situations that you face with joining a new DAO when you don't know anybody. But as you scale these DAOs, as they grow to like hundreds of people or thousands of people, how do you maintain that same level of contribution from your members? So that's one one question. And then the second question I have is like with governance, like how do you see governance structures working out when you have hundreds or thousands of people in a, a DAO? Do you see it as, you know, sort of like a a system like our government where we have maybe 10 people on the multi-sig voting on things and they serve as representatives for the rest of the hundreds or thousands of people because you know you, you can't have thousands of people on a multi-sig voting on things that would just be pure chaos
1: no that would be quite bad um i think so on the like dow's scaling point i think that there are two types of approaches that we're going to start to see emerge. The first is DAOs that are not supposed to scale, like DAOs that are intended to be those small groups, um, service DAOs like FireEyes, which is what Cooper Turley um, has worked on and through. Um, Llama might scale more because I they think they're going to productize eventually. But like these types of service DAOs that are not intended to scale, but are really intended to be a group of people who are able to provide a lot of value alone, I think, will be a popular way of doing things. DAOs that do want to scale, I think, becomes this question of, um, I'm like obsessed with pods, which is what Orca Protocol has been working on. I talk about them on Twitter all the time, because the concept behind it is really interesting, which is that you have these smaller groups of people that essentially are like teams in a company that are well below Dunbar's number. It could be like seven people, 12 people, whatever, something like that. Much more intimate group that are actually working on these challenges um, together as a unit. And I think that that is exactly how DAOs scale. So I think a lot of times when we think about scaling, we're like, oh, they're these monolithic, completely decentralized organizations. How is this going to work? The reality is that they're small groups of people working on very specific scopes. When that all comes together, very much like in a company, you get an effective organization. And so I think that's how DAOs scale, essentially, which very nicely dovetails into this governance question. I think, again, right now we think about governance as this monolithic thing, and it kind of is because of the way that um, token-based like voting has sort of worked so far, which Vitalik has openly talked about not being a good model um, for about a million different reasons. And so I think as more and more DAOs realize that Token weighted voting is not a good way to run a community. We're going to move a lot more towards smaller pods, as Orca calls them. They would be working groups or guilds in and, and a lot of DAOs are actually going to have votes within those. And so members of those smaller groups will have, in Orca's instance, an NFT that represents their ownership, and they'll be able to vote using that NFT. It doesn't have to be with Orca's, you know, implementation. It could be anything. But I think that model works really well. And then at the DAO level, you could have each individual working group um, essentially cast votes on something. You could have token holders cast votes and then actually use other mechanisms for those working groups to have a say as well. There're a bunch of different ways that you can do it, but I think we're going to see a lot more interaction between those groups and among those groups rather than having like a token that just controls the whole DAO and then people that execute on it. So I think that's sort of how that's going to shape up. I'm really interested in this this concept of um, Like commitment based voting within some of these groups, where you have, you know, for a given proposal, a scale of like zero to five zero being, I do not want, I like disagree with this proposal. Maybe one is like, I have concerns, but I'll talk them out all the way up to like four or five, which is like either I want to contribute and help build this or I want to lead it would be five. And so I think you can play around with like actually having people commit in order to vote. Like they have to have that that sort of commitment in order to say yes. Um, And you can combine that with all kinds of interesting models like quadratic voting and stuff to really like create some really interesting inter-DAO models. So I think there's cool stuff that we can experiment with and Hopefully that will be sort of the next year of of DAO um, experiments that happen. One of the main things I'm hoping that comes out of that is this question of governance because there's a lot to to play around with that I think we haven't even touched yet.
0: That's super the commitment-based voting is is super interesting. And I, I could definitely see that rising up as you know an effective model for both addressing both of those issues, governance and you know, scaling. And keeping people actively involved um one question we got from twitter this is from nick bishop he said what are the main hurdles preventing DAOs from replacing all corporate structures which i think is an interesting question a lot of people have been saying you know all organizations will be DAOs in the future like corporations won't survive in the next 10 20 years what are your thoughts on that um do you like do you see that happening one day do do we need is that something like we're after is that a goal or like can DAOs and corporations like exist side to side just fine
1: I think they will probably move towards a world in which a lot of the digitally native organizations that we currently have will be DAOs just because it makes more sense for communities to own those things. In the short term, the reason that I think DAOs are not replacing every single organization is these things take time. Most organizations are not going to want to transition to a DAO-based model. The main reason being, why would you give up control to a community? Like You're essentially giving all value to a community of people and i don't think any organization that's um currently sort of like in existence that that makes sense for them unless they have key challenges that DAOs specifically address in the longer term i think i hope that this happens like i hope that we have a massive ecosystem of DAOs when you even think about something like co-ops where like the workers own the means of production um Ecosystems of co-ops are much more successful than isolated co-ops. Because when you're isolated, you have to buy into this like old way of doing things. You have to take money from banks or venture capitalists. And so you slowly sort of give off ownership to other people that are not the community and um, But when you have an ecosystem of DAOs, you can exist within this, like, very cooperative society. You can actually do things like treasury diversification with other DAOs, where you essentially have this ability to, like, share um, upside in each other and and incentives to collaborate and all that stuff. Um, So I think that's, like, the bull case longer term for basically every single entity that is currently manifesting as a business to actually manifest as a DAO. The one... Side note, I will say to this that I think is going to be challenging, and I I haven't seen a lot of DAOs experiment with this, is um, DAOs that have like a lot of physical property, particularly companies that would want to transition to becoming DAOs when they have um, large amounts of, like, IRL assets, I think the legal aspect of things gets really funky. I mean, there's a lot of legal gray area already in DAOs, but, like, when you have assets that can be seized and all of these weird things, I think it becomes a lot more challenging. Um, so, I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic, but I'm very curious to see what gets experimented with because I think there are going to be some, some challenges that we need to work through over the next few years before we see, like, a massive shift to a much more DAO-based model.
0: Yeah, I think we need to work on a lot of just like organizational stuff on our ends, like the people working in DAOs and helping build DAOs. And then I think some of it is out of our hands, too. And it, we'll just have to wait and see where regulators want to take some of this stuff, you know, and how they want to see it. So fingers crossed on that front, not a <laughs> whole lot we can do. I mean, I guess lobbying, but other than that, not a whole lot. Yeah. Um, Cool. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is your podcast on the other side. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like what inspired you to create that and how that journey has been for you so far and would love to hear like some of your favorite parts about podcasting and some of your least favorite parts. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So um, the goal of the podcast was really to like explore this human side of Web3. And I I always say I have to give Brian Flynn full credit because he was trying to get me to tweet forever. And I was like, fuck Twitter. I don't want to do social media like that's not my thing. And he was like, okay, well, if you want to like you need to start doing something and it doesn't have to be Twitter. It could be writing. It could be podcasting. But like you have to do something. Podcasting is probably best because you're like a chatty person. And I was like, all right, cool, I'll do podcasting. Something that I've always been really passionate about was this human side of Web3. And so I started thinking a lot more about this um, and basically just like inviting on people who I thought might have some interesting takes in terms of how... Web3 will impact human beings sort of like on the other side of mainstream adoption was the idea where um, it's definitely going to shape our world completely. And a lot of this came from this idea that if Mark Zuckerberg and people who are watching Facebook had considered the impact of their decisions in the moment and, and talked openly about them, how would our world have sort of been different because of that? And so a lot of the intent of the podcast was really thinking about How can we think about a lot of these things ahead of time before we create systems that are maybe not good for humans and actually at least have open conversations about them and maybe mitigate some of those things, even on the point about mental health and the metaverse? Like, I think we need to be talking about these things now rather than later. And so I started having people on like that, which has been super, super fun, um, fun to just like explore things with people. And, and it has been really cool for um, to, to basically see that people like actually care about these things. I didn't know if people would, but I think people actually do like thinking about the human side of all of this. So it's been super, super fun. And it's been fun to do a podcast in general because I like chatting. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's a really important topic. And I think it's something that for whatever reason still feels a little taboo to talk about. I mean, I think mental health still feels taboo to talk about. And then I think like, in a space that's so ambitious and so fast moving, I think it's hard for people to be like, hey, you know what, like, I need to I need like a vacation. I'm going to stop off crypto Twitter for a week because I need this, like for my own sanity. Um, for some reason, like it just feels like either taboo or like embarrassing, or people just don't want to admit to like being human in a space that, you know, maybe it seems more like it's shifting more towards like robot dominance than humans <laughs> running the space. <laughs> But like at the end of the day, we are we are all still human and we have like basic human needs. And I I think it's super important
1: to talk about all that. Oh, yeah. And I think one thing that is a challenge for something like that is actually making sure that when we're having these conversations and when we're talking about mental health, like we're doing it, we're doing it in a way that isn't just theoretical like people love talking about things in crypto because it's intellectually stimulating and all that stuff but actually practicing it and creating a culture where we're encouraging people to like actually take that time i think is um super super important and hopefully like yeah a bear market will help with this i think like bull market mental health is like a, a bigger challenge but i don't know I, I don't know There there's sides to both so um Hopefully I can continue having those conversations and go deeper down random rabbit holes.
0: That's a really good point, too. Actions speak louder than words. I usually try to tweet every weekend, like, here's your weekly reminder to step away from your screen and get out in nature. And then, like, two hours later, I'm, like, up there tweeting again. So that's (laughs) obviously not a great way to show that I meant what I said.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But two hours is so good. Like, sometimes we have to start small, truly, because we're, like, so plugged in that a day away is, like, probably asking too much. I think it's about habits and practicing that, too. Um, Um, I'm not always the best with this like even though I didn't want to use Twitter I started using Twitter now I'm like oh Twitter is where my friends are it's where I think about things Um, so I think it's it's about creating a practice of stepping away and that's not not easy
0: yeah habits are not easy to form but we'll all get there we're all gonna make it (laughs) as they say (laughs) yes all right. Well, Chase, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I know we have to hop off onto something else. So before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also, where can people go to learn more about Decentology?
1: Yes. Um, so on Decentology, you can find us at Decentology on Twitter. We're also at Decentology.com. And then for me personally, I'm at Chaser Chapman on Twitter. It's just Chase Chapman, but with an R in between. And then um, you can also check out on the other side at other Side. Pod.xyz, i think that's what it is i'm not positive i will send you the official url um so that you can link it in the show notes
0: i think that's right i just checked it out recently i think it's other pod <laughs> on the other it's
1: one of those one of those variations it is a <laughs> dot xyz i remember that part <laughs> it is a dot xyz i i never remember what the actual thing is but it's also in my twitter bio so if you find me on twitter then then you can absolutely uh check out the podcast too
0: Go to Chaser Chapman on Twitter and you will get all the links there. Thanks again so much, Chase, for being here. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.